Good morning, everyone. Um, we are back with the final installment of Rabbi Silver's class, the family of Joseph. Sorry, the family of Jacob and the sale of Joseph. Uh, and we're going to be doing chapter thirty-eight. So, uh, yeah, so our final class. So enjoy. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, we started chapter thirty-eight last week. We'll see how far we can get today. Um, Chapter 38, of course, is the story of Yehuda and Tamar. And it's uh, situated, chapter 38, it begins after the sale of Joseph. Joseph was sold and has been brought down to Egypt, the last pasuk of chapter 37. He's in the house of Potiphar, the chief butcher, or Sarah Tabachim, officer of Pharaoh. And uh, so the Torah then cuts away from the story of Yosef. It will resume it in chapter 39, but in 38, it's a completely different story. Ba'itahi, at that very time, we're told the story of Yehuda and, uh, and Tamar. So obviously the question, of course, on everybody's mind is, why is this story here? It seems to interrupt the flow of the narrative. Not that, the, not that a narrator necessarily is bound to just continue the story without interruption. The writer can choose to move back and forth from one story to the next. There's no fixed rule. Nonetheless, it is interesting that it's here. And I would say that the very fact that it's here suggests that it's here for a very good reason because the obvious choice would be just to continue the Joseph story. Why is it here? We'll get back to that. In any event, we started last week and the Torah tells us that Yehuda has left his, his, his family, left his brothers. He left, he veers aside. It's part of the dissolution of the family that's taking place over the last few chapters. And <laughs> he sees the daughter of a Canaanite, whose name is the Shua, and he takes her. And very quickly, they have three children. And the Torah tells us the names of the three children. The oldest is Er, the second is Onan, the third is Shelah. We talked about that, the names, who gives the names, where Judah is when the third child is born. I'm not going over that again, except to say, to summarize and say that the Torah, has given us information we need for the story, but it's not just information. The way it gives the information and within the larger context of Breshit is highly suggestive and importantly, sets up expectations for the reader, which either will be met or will not be met. But in any event, we have a certain expectation. So let's, let's pick up our story where we left off last week, see how far we can get. And um, we're told that Yehuda found a wife for his oldest son. His oldest son is named Er. We remarked about that the word Er is a negative word for the most part. Um, and um, the Torah tells us in verse number seven, Vayhi Er b'chor Yehuda rabbi ene Hashem, Hashem. We're told that Er, Judah's oldest son is, is wicked. 
the re, of course, we notice the play in the Hebrew on the, on the name Er and the name Ra, Reish Ayin and Ayin Reish. The Torah does that in other places as well. When Noach Matzachen Rienei Hashem is a good example. Noach is Nun Chet, Chen is Chet Nun. So Noach, when you think of Noach, says the Torah, think of Chen, think of grace. When you think of Er, think of Ra. And the Torah then has an interesting two words, Vayimiteu Hashem, God killed him, which it doesn't usually say. That's not typically what the Torah would say. He's, he's, he, God kills him because he's wicked. And his wickedness is something quite inherent in this person. One might say it's who he is. He's, he's Ra. Er is Ra. So Judah's oldest son has died. Judah has lost a son. And Judah, this son was married to this woman, Tamar. So now in the next verse, we encounter something very, very important for us. Uh, not only for Yehuda and Tamar, elsewhere as well. And now we have Yehuda instructing son number two, whose name is Onan. It's also a negative name. Yom Yehuda, we Onan. Verse number eight. Judah said to Onan, Bobo eshet achicha v'yabemota v'yakem zera v'yachicha. Very important verse for the story. Judah instructs son number two, go on into your brother's wife, v'yabem ota. Yabem is a word that appears in the book of Devarim. In fact, there's a whole tractate, Masechet Yivamot, leveret marriage. So the idea is that if, a, if um, a man dies and he has no children, so then the, it's incumbent upon the, the relative, let's say the closest relative, to marry uh, the deceased wife. And the children that are born, all of them or the first of them or whatever, will somehow be connected to, will be seen as extending the kin lines of the deceased. Now, the question, of course, is which relative? The Torah in the book of Devarim in chapter 25 says, Ki achim yaktav, literally when brothers dwell together. And the tractate Yivamot, those doing the Dafiyomi in the middle of it, presumes that the obligation of leveret marriage devolves upon the brother and only the brother. The truth of the matter is when you read the Torah, that's not clear because the word ach can mean a brother, but the word ach in the book of Dvarim and elsewhere means a relative. Achim means a relative. The Gemara takes a restrictive view of, of leveret marriage and limits it to a brother. That's not necessarily what the Torah says in the book of Dvarim and it's certainly not what the Torah says in the story over here in chapter 38, nor does the book of Ruth suggest that at all. The book of Ruth does seem to suggest that if we think of the book of Ruth as leveret marriage, which is certainly one way to think of it, Boaz said to Ruth, I am related to you, but I'm not the closest relative to somebody closer. Doesn't sound like it's necessarily a brother in that particular case. In any event, here we have a brother. So Yehuda speaks to his son, who is Er's brother, and he says, go into your brother's wife, perform leveret marriage, and the, and the purpose of this is, raise up seed, it means children, descendants for your brother. We notice 
two things. First of all, we notice that the word Ochicha appears twice. So Yehuda is instructing his son about obligations one has towards a brother. And second of all, um, of course, the word Ochicha appears twice. And we have this concept of Yibun. And this is interesting to us because Yehuda speaking about brotherly responsibility is what Judah did in the previous chapter. When the brothers are sitting down eating their meal and Joseph is in the pit with no water and Yehuda and they lift up their eyes and they see a caravan of Ishmaelites traveling in the desert. And we have those two verses. So four times we have the word ach in those two verses. It begins with brother, ends with brother. And in Judah's speech, he says the word achinu twice. So Judah is someone, and he's the only one, who in chapter 37 spoke about brotherly responsibility. And once again, we find Judah in the next chapter speaking about brotherly responsibility. Therein is a link, one of many, to the larger context to the frame of this particular story. He's instructing his brother at Qua brother to perform what we would call Yibum. And the Torah says, however, he said two things, sleep with your brother's wife and have children. So in the next verse, the Torah informs us that he's going to do one of those, but not the other. Is Vayeda Onan Kilo Lo Onan knew, it says, that the children would not be his, that is to say, that the purpose of the Yibum would be to extend the kin lines of his, of, of his brother. And therefore that's nothing, he, he doesn't particularly wanna do that. He has absolutely no feeling of responsibility towards his brother or extending his brother's line. So therefore he does sleep with uh, the brother's, with Tamar. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't perform the uh, sexual act in such a way that it could that she could become pregnant. And therefore, and the reason is indifference to his brother. He doesn't want, for whatever reason, his brother to have kinuans extended. So he doesn't fulfill, he fulfills half of Judah's command, but the purpose of Judah's command of Yibum to extend the kinuans that he has no interest in at all. And the Torah says, Hashem this was evil in God's eyes, that which he did. And God killed him as well. So now Judah has lost his two oldest sons. And it's interesting that the Torah here makes two points. First of all, it actually tells us in the second instance, in both instances, why, he, why God kills him. In the first case, it says he's evil. Doesn't specify a particular act which demonstrates his, that he's evil. In the second case, the uh, cruel indifference to his brother, happy to sleep with this woman, but not to have children for the brother. So this is also called evil. And God killed him. So in other words, we the reader, this is an important point. The, the narrator, when my the term they like to use, the, the omniscient, the narrator knows everything. He knows what's going on inside the bedroom of, of Onan. Uh, Judah presumably does not know that. How would he know what actually goes on? 
but we, we know because the writer, the narrator has informed us and the narrator knows something else. God didn't like it. Narrator knows all about God. God didn't like it. It was evil in God's eyes. God killed him. In fact, God killed both of them, which is unusual where God intervenes to kill. And here it says clearly, and God killed both sons of Judah. And now we have son number three. Because remember, Judah has three sons. The third was named Shelah. We remarked, and Judah was in Kazir when, when Shelah was born. Shelah means to disappoint, Rashalot, to, 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 to delude, to deceive. Rachzir is to disappoint. So the Torah has already set up an expectation that Judah was in Kazir when the child was born. Because we remember the Judah of the previous chapter. Yes. He is the one who said, you don't kill your brother. That is true. He's also the one who said, let's sell our brother and make a little profit on the side. And now we have Judah speaking, and this is a very important verse, verse number 11. So it says, So Judah speaks to Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Reside as a widow in your father's house. Until my son Shelah grows up. Now the Torah tells us what he's thinking. Ki Omar. Omar can mean to say or to think. He didn't say this to her. Ki Omar, he said to himself, he thought, Lest the son number three meet the same fate as son number one and son number two. All he knows is this woman's married to son number one, he dies. The woman's married to son number two, he dies. Now I got one son left. So I'm not interested in having her marry son number three. Bad luck or whatever. So he says, why don't you go to your father's house and wait until son number three grows up? He's a little young. And the, but the thinking is, he says, lest he also die. And presumably, if the first two weren't too young, and they died, there's no guarantee that if son number three will marry Tamar, he will survive. So when he says, go and remain a widow in your father's house until he grows up, we suspect that actually, that's just a pretense. But what he really means is get out of my life, because I'll never allow you to marry son number three, you're a dangerous person. You'll get my, my third and only remaining child killed. That's what we suspect. And Tamar goes. Tamar Tamar goes, and she resides in her father's house. So we have to stop here for a moment to reflect on, on this verse, on verse number 11. And first of all, I think the important point over here, well, we can make the following assumption, that since Judah said to son number two, take your brother's wife, we have to assume that the story operates with a sense that there is a, a mitzvah called yibum. Yibum is leveret marriage, and the purpose of leveret marriage is to extend the kin lines of the deceased. And if that be the case, then actually, when Judah says, why don't you remain a widow in your father's house until he grows up? And he has no intention, presumably, of ever allowing her to marry 
son number three, but if he doesn't allow her to marry son number three, we have to remember what he's doing is he is protecting son number three, according to his thinking. We, the reader, know it's not the case. That God killed them, but he doesn't know that. Okay, so he's protecting son number three, but he's protecting son number three at the expense of son number one and son number two. And if you take brotherly responsibility to be uh, to uh, to be a very powerful obligation, then essentially the Judah that we're speaking of now in chapter thirty-eight isn't far removed from the Judah of chapter thirty-seven. 37, he also knew about brotherly responsibility. You don't kill your brother. But he didn't know the other rule. You don't kidnap and sell your brother for money either. So we're talking about somebody who has some understanding, but not a full understanding. That's the first point. The second point about verse number 11, that's very important within the biblical context is this. The sending her away, actually is from the Torah standpoint, generally speaking, a very bad thing to do. We have to remember that in the Chumash, if a man rapes a woman, apart from fines or whatever, he has to marry her and he, has, and he can never divorce her. Unlike other women who can be granted a bill of divorce, but this particular woman, he can't, he can't simply get rid of her. He can't divorce her. He has to, one might say, support her. That's his punishment. So over here, sending her away is something devastating. And the proof of the pudding is that in the other story of Tamar that we have in the book of Shmuel, story of Amnon and Tamar, Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar, and then she pleads with him afterwards. He says, he says to his servant, throw her out of here. Get rid of this one. And she begs him not to do that. She says, please don't do that. It's worse than the other thing you did. Don't just send me away. Because you cast me out, I'll be, I'll have nothing. No one's going to take care of me, presumably. Whether they'll blame you or not, it's a separate question. The Torah doesn't blame her. She's a victim. But she's all alone. And in point of fact, in the story of Amnon and Tamar, even King David doesn't take her back in and protect her. The one who protects her is Avshalom, her brother, who ultimately kills Amnon. So the idea of sending her away is problematic, very problematic from the Torah's perspective. We have to get into the head of the Torah. Now what we, what we, we may think, whatever that may be. And now there's something else about Judas speaking to Tamar in verse number 11. He's lying through his teeth. He's an outright liar. And the truth of the matter is, it doesn't even surprise us, sad to say, because that's how the previous chapter ended. It took the code of Joseph, they slaughtered a, a, a goat and they, uh, a kid, and they dipped the goat in the blood of the goat and they brought it to their father. And they said, Father, do you recognize this? And Yaakov says, The coat of my son, Joseph's coat, he's certainly been torn to pieces. Tarof, Taraf, Yosef. That is, did they lie to him? They didn't lie to him, but of course they did lie to him because they misled him. And in the previous chapter, it says the brothers sent the coat to their father, but Judah is the leading brother in the previous chapter. He's the one whose idea is either acted upon by the brothers or more likely happens, but they're thinking about what he's saying. He takes a lead role. So the point of verse number 11 is that 
it connects up to the previous chapter in a very deep way. It's the same kind of a person. His instincts aren't bad, actually. His initial instincts, he did command son number two to marry the widow of son number one, but he doesn't understand really what it means to be obligated as a brother. He doesn't get that. And he's not above deception if it will serve his purposes. So therefore the, once again, 38 is continuing among other things, the narrative we encountered in chapter 37. And Tamar goes, does she have a choice? And there's something else, something else, which is very important for this story. He, did, he didn't say the following thing. Now, those who learned Yuvamus and the Yuvamot and the Dafyomi, it's very interesting. There's one of the key conceptual points about Yibum, Yuvama, is the status of the woman who falls for Yibum before, he, before the Miyabemi, the marries her or does Halitza or lets her go. So there's a certain quasi status of marriage there. And, and the Gemaras and the commentaries try to identify precisely what it is. Um, but the point is this he could have said the following I can imagine such a script. And Judah said to Tamar, listen, you look like a wonderful person to me, but it's not working out for my family. I'm not blaming you, but it's for whatever reason, it's just not working out well. So you know what? I free you now to marry anybody you wish, except members of my family, because this is not a good shit as far as I'm concerned. I wish you well as you sail into the sunset, sayonara or whatever, and that's that. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say you have a life to live, don't live it. He says something very different. He says you remain a widow in your father's house. What do you mean you remain a widow in your father's house until I call you? What that means is you are bound to my family. You are bound to my family. And I uh, and I uh, and I'm not bound to you, but you are bound to me. That's what he's saying over here. So he keeps her attached. She can't marry anybody else. She has to wait for him to decide that Shayla has grown up, but we, the reader, know that will never happen. Shayla will never grow up because he's, he suspects that she's responsible for the death of, of his two sons. Now that's a mistake. We know that's a mistake. Maybe it's an honest error, but he's not dealing with it in an honest way. So the Torah, of course, typically, uh, he will be the hero of the story and maybe one of the great heroes of this book, but not yet. So this is verse number 11. I'll take a couple more verses and then we'll stop for comments. Now we have the phone. So Tamar is waiting for that phone call. She was old enough. Never will come, of course. So a lot of time passes now. In verse number 12. And now Judah's own wife dies. The, the nameless wife of Judah, the daughter of Shua, the Canaanite. She dies. And now we have the next word, Yehuda. Judah was consoled. Judah was consoled. Literally was Vayala goes the Zaid, so no. And he went up with the sheep shearers. Together with his friend Hira, the Adulamite, to the town of Timna. So one thing we notice immediately here is that we don't know how much time it elapsed between the death of Judah's wife and his being consoled 
and is taking the trip up to the sheep shearing. Sheep shearing is a time of great rejoicing because that's when you count your profits. Uh, you, you're very involved in the, in the profit taking. It's a time of drinking. You know from the story of David and Naval, there's a lot of drinking, carousing. So Judah sets out after the death of his wife on a pleasure-seeking journey. Al Gozazet, so no, sheep shearers. Now we don't know, was it two years later? Was it two months later? Was it two days later? Or was it two hours later? We don't know, but we do know is that the very first word after the death of his wife is recorded is Vayinachem Yehuda. He's consoled. And the fact that he's consoled so quickly, one might say from the narrative standpoint immediately, is in striking contrast to two different things. First of all, it's in contrast to Tamar, who's still playing the widow. Shri Amona Beitavich, you, you're, you're the widow, he said to her. Means you're in some kind of state of mourning, grieving over your husband. But many, many, a long time has passed. Maybe it's five years. She's supposed to remain the eternal widow. And that's one thing. But the second thing is in the previous chapter, end of chapter 37, when uh, they, they bring the coat to their father, Yaakov, and Yaakov says, oh, Joseph's coat, he's certainly been torn to pieces, right? He mourns his son for many days. Yamim Rabim, at the end of chapter 37. And his all his sons and daughters rose up to console him. He refused to be consoled. He said, I will go down to the grave mourning my son. And his father cried. So we have a contrast. In the previous chapter, Jacob refuses to be consoled, can't accept the consolation. Is it extreme? It's hard to know. It was his beloved favorite son. And from the standpoint of our standpoint, the reader, Joseph is necessary for the family to be a buyout, to be an inclusive structure. But there you have a situation where the father is grieving. And of course, the, the cause of his grieving is the brother's behavior. But he refuses, he's not gonna give up. After all, Joseph's body has not been found. And over here, we have by striking contrast, his wife dies by Yenachem Yehuda. He's, a, he's consoled immediately, next word. So there's a very striking contrast between Yehuda on one hand and the previous cha chapter, Yaakov, and also a striking contrast between Tamar has been instructed to be a widow, I would say a grieving widow. And you see, she's a grieving widow, by the way, from later in the story, because she has on widow's clothing. She was wearing the clothing of mourning, big day Amanuta. she wears the clothing of a mourner. So she's to mourn forever until Judah tells her it's time, which he never will. And when it, when it comes to Judah, when his wife dies, he's off to the Mardi Gras. So there is, I think, here a subtle, and maybe not so subtle, critique of Yehuda here as well. By the way, before I stop in a moment and take comments or questions, but interesting in the previous chapter, I don't think I remarked on this. When uh, Yaakov is saying Joseph's coat, he's been torn to pieces at the end of chapter 37, all his sons, and all his daughters rose up to console him. Why did the Torah mention his daughters? First of all, it sounds like Yaakov has many daughters. Some people, some people think maybe the granddaughters, but why mention them all together? Could have said, 
why emphasize the daughters as opposed to the, uh, to the sons? So there could be two reasons for it. One is that the, in general, throughout the Bible, when it comes to mourning, when it comes to uh, eulogizing, the women are assumed to have a special skill. As, as Jeremiah said, Kiru Since they're the ones who bring the children into the world, they have a, a, maybe a more profound understanding of, of life and death. But there's something else in the case of the sons who will rise up to console him. This is my friend Shimon Deutsch suggested this to me once and I like it. So I'll repeat it in his name. The sons know the truth. They know that Joseph is missing. Okay, presumed dead, but not necessarily dead. They had wanted to sell him. Who knows? Probably dead. He's in a desert, no water, whatever. But the daughters don't have a clue what happened. They assume he's really dead. So their consolation can be a real consolation because they really think he's dead. The son's consolation can't be real. It's got to be fake because they know he's maybe not dead. But the daughters, they don't know anything. So they're kind of, and, and despite that, he refuses, Yaakov refuses. Okay, let me now, we, let's stop at this point for a moment and I'll take comments or questions. Uh, either speak up on mute or in the chat, either way. Is there anything in the chat? Uh, I had a couple of questions yes, from ahead. the chat. Hey, hi. Thank you, hi. thank you, thank you. Um, I'll just read what I wrote. Tamar doesn't speak uh, until she asks Judah what she what what um, he he'll give her, you know, for going with him. And is that significant uh, in the in that this whole thing is going around? Um, this whole thing is proceeding without hearing at all anything from Tamar until this question: you know, What will you give me if I do this? Well, is there any I mean, significance well, to the, that? The, she speaks when she has something to say. And the fact of the matter is that, I mean, she takes him at his word when he says, mm -hmm. go back home, my son's too young. And later mm -hmm. on, she understands the son who grew up a long time ago and Yehuda has no intention. That's what she sets out to entrap him. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no question that this particular story is actually quite amazing that this, is, this, story, this chapter is the turning point of the book of Genesis and the hero, heroine is, 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 is Tamar. She teaches mm -hmm. Judah how to behave. So mm -hmm. her silence, she's, she speaks when she has something to say and when she has nothing to say, she doesn't talk. When mm -hmm. she comes to recognize the situation, the reality, then she jumps into action and she's, you know, she's the mm -hmm. great heroine. She also, she gets him to, to do the right thing, which is not always so simple. So mm -hmm. and he's, he's, and he's a very good student. But she's, yeah. she's, she's the Rebbe of chapter 38. And I would say this chapter is the turning point in the book because it's for the first time we have a, a way we can figure out how in fact you can actually build, build the so-called house or the family. How do you build the inclusive structure? That's what she's basically teaching him in chapter 38. And later in Breshit, Judah puts this into, into play. He, he does exactly what he's taught in chapter 38 later on his confrontation with Yosef. We will get there, hopefully. And, and thank you, thank you. And last thing, uh, is there a, any relationship between when Tamar asks for the 
a kid from the flock, you know, like a, a more of a younger. Uh, is there any symbolic relationship between that and the son issue? Well, Tamar doesn't ask for the kid. Judith volunteers it. Volunteer. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Tamar rejects it. He says, okay. I will send you a kid later. Okay. And he says, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't accept your promises of sending me anything. Given the fact, of course, we know he's promised to send her his son for the last many years and didn't do it and never will do it. So she calls him. She says, no, there's no way. This is the cash business. We don't, we don't take credit in this business. And therefore, uh, what are you giving me now? And she tells him what she wants. But it's not that he volunteers. She says what, Trey Strike will get there. She says what she, she says what she demands of him. That's her uh, demand. So, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Hopefully, in a few minutes. Anybody else for a comment or question? Rabbi Ken Benotov, you mean granddaughters, not just daughters? Oh, thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Can the word benotav, ayakumu banavu benotav, can benotav mean granddaughters, not just daughters? Yes, I mentioned that, that some of the Mepharshim take that to mean granddaughters. Okay. Yes, thank you for that comment. That's true. I, I mean, we don't know how many women, how many daughters Yaakov has. No, Dina, but it's a story about Dina. And generally speaking, the Torah doesn't mention the women. That's a separate question, but that's, so it could be, benotav means literally daughters, but it's possible it's granddaughters as well. But in any event, it's women as opposed to men. And my point is that the, they were not involved in the sale. So they, from their perspective, they assume he's dead. So therefore they, they could really try to console because they they think he's really dead. But the sons, their consolation can't be real because they know he's not necessarily dead. He may be dead, missing and maybe presumed dead, but, but not dead, we don't know. Um, okay, so let, we, let us now continue. And um, yeah, let's continue here. So now, fine. So Yehuda, after the death of his own wife, is traveling to Timna together with his friend, Chira the Yeduamite. Chira Amit Timnata. Maybe later on I have a, a thought about Chira and about Aduam and about Timna, but uh, let's leave that for now. And now we have in verse number. 13, it was told to Tamar, saying, She was told, we don't know by whom, um, uh, by somebody, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timna to shear, uh, to shear the sheep. I mentioned before about sheep shearing in the Bible. It appeared earlier in chapter 31 with Ravan. That's when Jacob runs away because Lavan's preoccupied with the sheep shearing. Story of David and Naval in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, sheep shearing, and over here as well. So she hears this. We don't know how she finds out. It's very interesting. She's told by somebody. She has somehow, somehow she's somehow she's able to get this information. We don't know how. I'll come back to this later. There's an interesting parallel in the book of Breshit in this regard. In any event, and now we have interesting description. Says the Torah, she took off her widow's garments. And she covered herself with its saif, a veil. 
She covers herself with a veil. And she 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 uh, sits down at the entrance to a naim. A naim is eyes. She's sitting on this on the, in the middle of the road. Derech naim on the road to Timna. And now the Torah says why she's doing this. For she saw, she perceived that Shehu in fact had grown up. And she was not given to him as a wife. So she understands, she perceives, she knows. Uh, literally, she sees that what Judah said was not true. It says, wait around until he grows up, he gets older, then you marry him. But he has grown up, and she was not given to him as a wife. She, she perceives this. Interesting, she understands or perceives, literally sees. And the place that she stays in the middle of the road is Petach Enayim, Enayim or eyes. She's staying in a place, oh, you might say open eyes. She sees everything, she gets it. She understands the situation. And now we'll see what happens next. Judah sees her and he thinks she's a prostitute for her face was, was covered. In other words, the point being, the simple meaning is he doesn't recognize her. If she were not wearing, uh, if her face were not covered, then he would probably recognize his former daughter-in-law from two marriages. But since her face is covered, he doesn't know who it is. He doesn't recognize her. Uh, he thinks she's a prostitute, a zona. Uh, a zona. Remember earlier in the Torah, in chapter 34, in the story of Dina, after Shimon and Levi uh, massacred the town of Shechem, and Jacob critiques them, and, the, and they said, what's our sister, a prostitute? Not supposed to defend her honor? So a zona is not an esteemed profession then. It may be, it exists in society, no doubt, but it's used pejoratively. So Judah thinks she's a zona, doesn't speak well for Judah. And okay, his wife died, sees this woman on the road. He can't recognize her, he doesn't know who she is, her face is covered. And now we have in the next verse, he veered aside to her, veers aside um, by, by the road. Let me come to you. The word hava is one of those words that typically, for whatever reason, in the book of Reshit and beginning of Sefer Shvot, is used pejoratively. Hava. So in this case, hava is meaning I'll pay you. It's a kind of uh, contract. He did not know it was his daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law, presumably, he wouldn't sleep with his own daughter-in-law. She says, What will you pay me? What will you give me? He says, look, I'll send you a goat. I'll send you a kid later on. Promises to send a goat. And she says to him, I demand security before you send it. Your promise is not good enough. What are you going to pay me now? I need a, what's called an Eiravon. The word Eiravon is a critical word of chapter 38. It's a it's security, a guarantee. In, in the Talmud, if I want to borrow money from you and you think I may not be able to pay you back, Look for a guarantor. The guarantor is called an arev. 
The Arev says, if he won't pay, I'll pay. That's the Arev. What will you give me now, she says. Forget the promises. You're going to send me the goat? You want to redeem the goat? Okay. But right now, I need payment. Give me a Eravon. Give me, a, give me some security now. And before we move further, let us remind ourselves that the goat, the Gedi-Izim, the Izim, which appeared at the end of the previous chapter, the brothers slaughtered the goat and dipped the coat of Joseph in the blood and brought it to Jacob. Father, do you recognize this? That was misleading their father. But we also remember, of course, that in the story of Jacob pretending to be Esau and standing in front of his blind father and tricking him, he's able to do so because his mother sent him to get two goats and he puts the skins of the goats on his neck and on his hands. So if his father will touch him, he won't know who it is or think it's Esau. And the mother prepared the food. So the A's the is, is the mechanism of deception in this book. So when he says, I'll send you a goat later on, he may well intend to send it. But the reader is reminded of deception, of promising to do something or tricking somebody else, which of course is the story of Yudan and Tamar. I'm going to send you my son later when he grows up. But Tamar understands that's never going to happen. It hasn't happened yet and it never will. So when he says, I promise to send you something later, what she says is no. I need a security now. The word eravon will appear three times. Very important word. So Judah says, What do you? What kind of security do you want? What kind of security do you want? Patomer. So she says, I want three things. I want your seal. People had seals, especially important people had seals. Kings have seals. Pitilecha literally is cords or strings. But of course, um, you know, it means probably means a coat. Maybe coats had fringes on them in general, or maybe not, but it probably does mean a coat. I want your seal. I want your coat. And I want your staff. All of these three things, by the way, staff, seal, and coat, all of them are identified in the book of Breshit, actually, and in the Bible with uh, kingship. In fact, in chapter 49, when Jacob blesses Judah, the staff and the seal shall never depart from Judah. One might say, never again depart from Judah. So what she's demanding of him are, first of all, symbols of leadership, or one might even say kingship. And she's also demanding of him, him things, especially the seal, that can identify him. Because later on in the story, it may become necessary, it, it will become necessary to identify, she gets pregnant from him, and to identify the father of this uh, to-be-born child. Um, so that's why she's demanding it. She's the one who says, Staff the seal, and I would translate the coat. Coat, of course, we know is a symbol of leadership. In fact, in the previous chapter, we have Joseph's coat. Joseph's multicolored coat or long sleeves coat, ketoned pasim. So she demands of him these things, right? And he, and he, he agrees. Right? 
right? He gives her these things, he sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant. Fine. So now she's pregnant. Now the question one can ask over here, obviously, is what is her motive? Why is she doing this? And one can think of two possible motives, I think, uh, in the story. One might say, for want of a better term, revenge, you know, to take her vengeance out. And this guy has been lying to her the whole time, refusing to give her, him, her, his son, to whom she is entitled. He's been mashule, he's been, he's been disappointing. And I mentioned also possibly, possibly, that Shayla, Shin Lamed Hay, if read differently, it's not vocalized in the Torah, can also be read Shayla, that which is hers. I'm not sure that's true. It could be though. So he didn't give her that which is hers, which, that which she is entitled to. So she takes him instead. Could be revenge, or I don't think it's actually revenge. I believe it's something different, which is that actually her interest is not vengeance. Her interest is building the family. And the way you build the family is through Yibum. And remember, Yibum precludes anybody else from marrying her. Only a member of the family can marry her. That was Judah's instruction. When you wait a, while, wait a while until he grows up, or maybe it's 15 years later, he grew up a long time ago. I mean, some people never grow up, but to the extent he can grow up, he grew up. So the point is, how do you build the family? She knows she'll sit there to be a widow till she dies. So if you can't get the closest relative, then you get the second closest relative. And the presupposition of chapter 38, and the Ramban makes this point, and I think it's a simple reading of the Torah actually, that if you can't, the closest relative is defined as the brother. But if you can't get the, can't get the closest relative, then you go after the second closest relative. And the second closest relative is actually the uh, father-in-law. He's the next in line. So if you can't, if she isn't able to sleep with the brother, because Judah prevents it, then she goes after the second closest relative to perform the mitzvah of Yibum. And this idea, by the way, that Yibum in this story here, and then of course the story which is based on it, and we're gonna read it in about a week, which is the book of Ruth, story of Ruth, which is also about Yibum, it's exactly the same story, because in the story of Boaz and Ruth, Boaz says to Ruth, when she's lying next to him at midnight, and she says, you know, you are the, you're the one who has to protect me, you're the one who has to marry me. And Boaz says to Ruth, I'm, you're a wonderful woman, you're an ancient chayo, he says, but remember there's somebody close, I'm not the closest relative, I'm the second closest relative. So the other guy won't do it, I'll do it. But he makes that commitment. So both in the book of Ruth, which is about Yibum, and the story of Judah and Tamar, which have all kinds of interesting parallels, can't get into that now, all kinds of parallels, it's the second closest relative. So Tamar's motive, we search for motive, is very simple. Her motive is to restore the family. She's lost two, two husbands, each of us died without children, and to sleep with this guy, at least one of the two lines can be extended. Of course, it will turn out in the story, it's a marvelous story, that not one of the lines will be extended, but both lines will be extended because you're gonna have twins, which is an incredibly important point in the story that was missed by most people. 
the twins is of great significance in the story. But minimally, I mean, who says she gets pregnant altogether? But she does get pregnant, things work out well. And uh, that is the motive, presumably. In any event, um, in any event, so this is what, and she, but she's gonna need proof afterwards that he in fact is the, is the father. Fine. I'll take a couple more verses and then I'll stop for comments or questions. We're up to verse number 19. Um, Vatokon Vatelech, Vatosa Tsi Fomeoela, Vatilbash Big Day Awinuta. She got up, she walked, walks away. She takes off her, her, her kerchief, her veil, and she put on the widow's garments. Now, before I comment about this verse, question is why is this verse here altogether? Why, why is this piece of information significant? I just wanted to point out that actually the suggestion I made, namely that what she's after here is in fact leverage marriage to the next closest relative or the closest relative who's a possibility is borne out in the text by something else, which is the emphasis in the Chumash on the veil. Because the, the woman veiling herself, which we have one other place in Genesis, in Breshit, we have it earlier in chapter 24, so when Rebecca sees Yitzchak, Rivka's coming back, coming to the land, and she sees a man walking in. Who's that fellow? That's my master. That's Yitzchak. And she covered herself with a veil. It's a marriage act. So from her perspective, this is marriage. That's from her perspective. Marriage to, to build the family, in this case, to rebuild the family. That's from her perspective. From Judah's perspective, though, it's some woman he meets in, sitting in the, in the middle of the road, her face is covered. He has no idea who it is altogether. So it's a completely profane act from his standpoint. In any event, so she leaves. And the Torah then says, she takes off the veil and she puts on the widow's garments. And the question is, of course, why did the Torah mention that she puts on the widow's garments? Why is this verse necessary? She left, okay, fine. She left, they can't find her. What is this business of taking you off the veil and putting on the widow's garments? Why does the Torah mention that? So I would suggest the following. The point over here of the story is Tamar is trying to build a family. She has many obstacles in her way. Wicked husband number one, wicked husband number two, God, God intervened, God killed them both. No children. And now Yibum, we have another obstacle. Not wicked husband number one and wicked husband number two, but dubious character Judah, who refuses to allow her to have Yibum. So she has to maneuver around him. But for Yibum to work, and this is a, a very important point in my opinion, for Yibum to work properly, and this actually in, in tractate Yivamo, it lies behind the tractate, very important point. Yibum fundamentally, marrying your brother's wife, marrying your brother's wife in the Torah is on the list of forbidden relationships. It, it, the punishment is correct, excision. It's on the, it's on the series on the serious list, which appears twice, about, about it, forbidden relationships, incestuous relationships, forbidden relationships. And Yibum is such a mitzvah 
that under the circumstances of building up the family or extending the kin lines of the deceased, the Torah waives the prohibition. By the way, there's another story in Genesis which, which could be seen as Yibum. And that's the story of Lot and Lot's daughters. Lot's daughters get their father drunk, sleep with him. For they say that our world has been destroyed and we, we want to propagate the world. So they get their father drunk and each one sleeps with them, each one gets pregnant, each one has a child. One is Amun, one is Moab. It's not clear the Torah condemns it, condemns them. But, this is the important but, but for Yibum to work, it requires the knowledge and the commitment of both parties, not just the woman, but the man and the woman. In the case of Lot, if you recall in chapter 19, if you don't, I'll refresh your memory. And the Torah is emphasized in the case of Lot, Lot did not know in her lying down and getting up. The picture of Lot at the end of chapter 19 of our book is someone who does not know. If he doesn't know, he can't sanctify that act. So the problem over here is, yes, Tamari may be, let's call her a virtuous, righteous woman, wants to do the right thing, sleeping with this guy for all the right reasons. But the problem is, takes two to tango. Unless Judah himself comes to recognize and to affirm what has happened, it remains simply a kind of illicit act. It can't work. It can't work on the practical level, and it can't work on the, on the, uh, on the religious level. So, Therefore, the Torah says she put on her widow's garments because nothing's happened actually. Nothing's changed yet. Things will change if Judah changes. But the question is, will Judah change? That's the big question over here. I would say the picture of Yehuda in this chapter so far does not give us a great sense of optimism that this is gonna be a hero. It's very hard to have any faith in Judah. The only person who actually has faith in Judah, believe it or not, is a, is a Tamar. She actually has faith in him. She knows he's gonna do the right thing or that he will may do the right thing and she's willing to risk it. So that's what makes her a hero. In any event, but so far nothing's happened. Nothing has transpired because we need his consent. We need his understanding. And now we have the following. <laughs> Wonderful verse. Now Judas sends his, his, his company, his friend, Chira. He sends because he wants to get back his stamp and his seal and his coat. They're very important to him. He wants to get them back. So he sends his friend to get them, to take back the pledge. The He could not find her. By the way, once again, I'm not going to comment now on it. I'll comment briefly. The theme of finding, searching and finding that we had earlier. We had it with the, the Ish who finds Joseph. Joseph finds his brothers. But the brothers never make an attempt to find Joseph. And here we have in the very next chapter, once again, we encounter the theme of finding. He sends his friend to find her. I cannot find her. So he inquires of the people of the place, saying, Where is the Kadesha? It's interesting. Earlier, the Torah called her a Zona. A Kadesha is, one might say, a cult prostitute. Why, did he, why does he describe her as a Kadesha and not a Zona? 
So I would suggest, because the word Kadesha, which is related to Kedusha, actually, it's a related word. And what Kedusha is about in the Bible, and maybe beyond the Bible, it's all about time and place. It's having a particular place and a particular time. So a Kadesha is someone who has a particular place. She stays in a certain place. She stays on that road. So you can find her. A zona is the opposite. The word who is noticed to stray. Where is the stray? How do you find the stray? But a Kadesha, he says, is there a cult prostitute here who has a particular place you find her? That's the only hope he has to find her. Can't find a stray, a zona. But they say, well, there is no Kadesha here. And we, the reader, nod our heads, certainly not. There may be Kadusha here, but there's no Kadesha here. That's for sure. So what does he do? He can't find her. He returns to Judah and he says, I could not find her. Not only that, the people say no such person is even here altogether. There is no cult prostitute here. So I can't find her and no one has a clue. And now we have Judah's wonderful response in verse number 23. And Judah said, let her keep it. Let her keep the Eravon, the, the staff, the seal, and the coat. Let her keep it. Lest we be an embarrassment, lest we be shamed. Lavuz, uh, disgraced. Here they translate laughing stock. Behold, I sent the, the goat, and you could not find her. So I have a couple of comments about this wonderful verse. I mean, it sums it all up, this one verse. First of all, the expression in the verse, penny lest we be disgraced or shamed, etc. That word lavuz, um, appears a couple of other places in the book of Breshid, and it's negative, no question. But the place that jumps to mind is the story of Esau. Esau comes back from the field, he's very tired. He's presumably hungry. And he says to Yaakov, give me some of that red stuff you got. Pour it down my, my, my throat, that red stuff. Yaakov says, sell, sell me your birthright. Who needs birthrights? Who needs birthrights? I'm dying. Who needs birthrights? Swear to me, swears. And the Torah says he gave him the soup, he ate, he drank. So Esau, Vayibes, disgraced or squandered, squandered the birthright. And in thinking about that story of Esau sells the birthright for a bowl of soup, from a certain perspective, we understand it because the, 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 the birthright, presumably, birthright's about the future. And what Asim is all about is the present. He's not thinking about the future. Same thing with the blessing. He's very angry that Yaakov took a blessing that his father wanted to give him, but the, ultimately the blessing Yaakov gets is not for Asim. Yaakov's blessing is about the covenantal blessing, suffer for generations, and sometime in the future, after you're dead, your descendants possess a land. That's not Esau. Esau wants his land right now. So Esau basically sells the birthright for a bowl of soup, one might say, 
Because the truth of the matter is, that's what it's worth for Asa, not more than a bowl of soup. It has no value, really. He may want it for other sentimental reasons or whatever, it has no real value. And I mentioned that because over here, what does Judah say? He gave away his staff, his seal, and his coat. These are symbols of leadership throughout the Bible. And the point is, he sends his friend to go get it. Friend says, I couldn't find her. Couldn't find her. The word Matzah appears three different times. Could not find her. What is Judah's response? Let's say it's not a, let's say the child is kidnapped. You know, I went to ask questions and, and no one seems to know anything about it. What would the parent presumably say? Okay, then we keep looking. What would Jacob say about Joseph? He's not consoled. We keep looking. Part of it is he's probably dead. Part is we have no body. You keep looking. So over here, after one day, one day, when this friend says, I, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't find him. Let her keep it, lest we be embarrassed. Because people will start asking questions. Who is this person? Zona. But if it really mattered to you, if, if, if kingship, if leadership really mattered, you give, give up after one day. But of course, given the story, what do you mean leadership? What, what kind of leadership does this guy exhibit? No leadership. Okay, he said, don't kill your brother. But he didn't say, you don't sell your brother. Okay, Yibum, but to a point. Then he sends her away. And you have to, be, you're, you're tied to me, but I can gallivant around with anybody I want. So this is a demonstration of total lack of leadership. So of course, so for such a person who really says the Chumish, it's not really worth anything. So let it keep it, who cares? Let it keep the things that represent my, my leadership because he's expressed no, no leadership whatsoever. There's a wonderful touch in this verse, of course, which I, I like very much. He says, let her keep it. Behold, he says, I sent the goat. You couldn't find her. Says it all. I did my part. I sent the goat. You couldn't find her. The shalach often in these cases is a way to, to deflect responsibility. You couldn't find her, your fault. And now there's something else here before I stop and take other comments or questions, which is these, the symbol of leadership. Because I think it's interesting when Tamara says, I want you to give me these things. Now, part of it is to identify him later on when it will be discovered shortly that she's pregnant. Uh, Judah hears that she's pregnant. While she's pregnant, he says, take her out to be burned. That's his response, so let her burn. And of course, I suspect, let her burn, not because she's a single woman who's pregnant, but I suspect in the story, the better interpretation in my view, one could disagree. She's not a single woman who's, who's pregnant. She's a betrothed woman who's pregnant. Betrothed to son number three. She's part of my family. I didn't say she could leave. I said, wait around for my son. True, we know you, you, she'll wait forever. That's the hypocrisy, which has no bounds. She's going to be burned because she violated the sacred relationship, which Judah refuses to uh, to 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 permit to have it occur. That's the hypocrisy here. But I, but I love this idea of I did my thing. Shalachti, you did it. He turns to his friend. And that's the function of the friend. Now we understand the name. Why the emphasis on the friend? Chira. It's a way to reflect 
to deflect responsibility. So this is the point. Now I want to add another point about the, her demand of the staff, the seal, and the coat. And I believe another way to read this, which I think is true, I wouldn't say it otherwise, but I think it's shot. It's not just that he's abandoned the staff, the seal, and the coat, but, but the reality is, who is the person to whom the staff, the seal, and the coat actually belong? I mean, who's the person in this story and the only person who actually sees take responsibility for the family? It's not Judah. It's Tamar. It's exactly Tamar who's willing to dress up as a Zona. And as the Torah says very well, there is no Zona here. Same thing as Ruth. Why does this woman, Ruth, virtuous woman, Eshet Chayo, lying down at midnight next to this guy, Boaz? Why? The answer is very simple. Because Boaz, with all his big talk, doesn't want to do the right thing. The right thing is to marry Ruth. And she calls him on it. And Boaz, to his credit, says, you're right. And there's someone closer, okay. But if he won't do it, I commit myself to doing it. But when people don't do what they're supposed to do, someone always has to pick up the slack, you know? I remember when Milton Friedman, the economist, went to Israel, spoke to the Knesset. And they asked him, Dr. Friedman, you're an economist, your theories. Can you tell us your whole Torah are standing on one way? Right, we have in the Gemara. Tell us the whole Torah on one way. And he said to the Knesset, there's no free lunch. That was his answer. Someone always pays. Someone always picks up the bills. In this case, it's Tamar. He's not doing the right thing. She wants to build the family. His family, no less. But uh, so she does what she has to do. So the, the staff and the seal and the cult, the symbols of leadership, they belong to her. And that's the point of the story. It's not just they don't belong to him. He actually belonged to her. And now the question is, how does he actually, how does he actually reclaim the symbols of leadership? That's what this chapter is about. Because if you know how to reclaim the symbols of leadership, you will know how to build the, the, the house and you know how to, how, to, how to become a leader. And there's only one way to reclaim it, and we'll see. In any event, okay, let me stop at this point and take comments or questions on this, uh, to this point. Actually, we're gonna finish the chapter. The Torah is one heck of a storyteller. I mean, it's unbelievable. This is a compelling story. Yes, let's hear. Hiya, El, I think you've had your hand up for a while, Jennifer. Sorry, you're muted. Yeah. The, the Tamar is another, example of the um, leadership of women in Sefer Bereshit. That's so true. She takes events right. in her own hand. Since you mentioned that, I would just embellish that your statement in the following way. We're not going to get to this now. When we resume, we'll have to start with, but the point you're making is a very important point. There is a character in this book, I would say Tamar's spiritual twin even though they operate in completely different ways, but fundamentally they're the same. And that is Rebecca, Rivka. Rivka and Tamar are, are linked characters. They're linked in several ways. The obvious ways, they both have twins. And we're not going to get to that today, but the birth of the twins at the end of this chapter and the birth of the twins of Rivka in chapter 25 
those two stories are actually linked in some interesting ways. They're not identical at all. In a certain way, they're very different, but they also have a certain commonality. Each of those two women understand how, to, how we have to move forward. They don't have the ability themselves alone to move forward. Because in the case of Rivka, at the end of the day, Yitzhak has the blessing, he's got to confer it. At the end of the day, Judah is going to be the one to bring the family together. But Judah doesn't know what to do, how to behave, and someone's got to teach him, and that's going to be Tamar. In the case of Yitzchak, someone's got to teach Yitzchak about the very blessing he possesses. That's got to be Rifta, but she can't give the blessing. So those it's similar in that respect. Then there are other interesting commonalities between Rifka and Tamar that would require some time. So maybe whenever we meet again, we will start with that. That's a very important observation, though. The women in Breshit in general, maybe even the Bible, so it's true in the book of Shmuel, uh, and it's true in Breshit, the women have um, a better understanding of the way things have to work. Now, in a book like Shmuel, and maybe it's true in Breshit as well, it's for a very simple reason. It's Dafka because they have no power to make the changes. In the book of Shmuel, the more power you have, Unless you see, that's the, the one who has the best understanding of anybody in the book of Shmuel is the first character we actually can meet in the book of Samuel, which is Hannah. She's perfectly. She sees what no one else sees, that the temple in which she stands is utterly corrupt. We need a new leadership. She prays for new leadership. She's going to train the new leader. And the reason she sees it, and only she sees it, she's a childless woman whose husband's given up on her. And not only that, he's got another wife. And therefore, she sees perfectly, because she's not vested. She can see objectively what is right and what is wrong. She stands in the temple of Shiloh and she says, this place got to be destroyed. And the, the only one who thinks along the same lines is God. God is exactly the same and the same anger. So the point of the book of Shmuel is that what power does, it doesn't enable you to, it, it makes it difficult to see the truth. So if you have less power, you're not in the inside of things, you have a sort of critical distance, you see better. And there are two kinds of people in the book of Shmuel that have critical distance. One of the women, the second is the, uh, the uh, prophet. Each one has no power. They have moral power maybe, but they have no actual power. So in any event, the, the observation is very important and we will hopefully uh, talk more about that in the future. Uh, anybody else for comment over yeah. here? Jennifer, do you want to go ahead? Just because I know you have to leave. Uh, yeah, four minutes. Go ahead. Oh, no, I don't want to. Well, I thank you, but I don't want to take class time. Uh, maybe you can just keep going. Uh, I can write to you. It's just relationships between uh, words used in the text and parallels to the Joseph story. And go ahead. Talk. Up. Talk. Oh, Okay. Um, well, I was thinking that um, I got to go back to my, uh, that, you know, the, the words, uh, let me just find it. it'll be a lot faster this way. Um, uh, is there any relationship between Tamar being told in verse 13, where you have the uh, Vayagad uh, and the same letters for the young goat in the following verses, there's, uh, <laughs> And then uh, and then also um, because I'm thinking of Joseph being told 
his brother's location by the stranger and then the coat and being used for deceitful purposes and the blood in one case being used to sim to represent, oh, he died versus blood. Uh, um, anyway, that, that was about just- I don't know about the degree in the guy who died is interesting, I don't know. And we'll talk more about this in the future yeah. about the relationship between I'm the story so of Judah and Tamar and Joseph's story, of course, is. There all are many other links between them. They're certainly connected. And of course, the code is connected. In the case yeah. of Judy, he's going to get his code back. In the case of Joseph, Joseph never gets back the same coat. Joseph always gets a new, a new set of clothing. A new set of clothing. Always. I'm so grateful. And Judy gets the back the same coat, and that's very significant. So we'll deal with that in the future. Or is anybody else? Debbie, you yes. had something to say? I, think I was just thinking that um, in order to comment and to see the the corruption and everything you have to be outside the system that you get that perspective and you you don't have a stake into it you're not vested in it so it's easier to see it with clarity that's my point you know, that's exactly exactly my point. sarah sarah could see things that avraham couldn't he was part of the give and take with avimelech or with uh paro and sure. Sarah, though, is not a pawn in that, or is a pawn, but doesn't, uh, you know, manifest any power, so she can comment on it. That's the people who are not part of the system can have the revolution, can change things because they see it much more clearly. They're not manipulated right. by it. What you have to do is, in order for the revolution to take place, you need to, someone's got to see it. Right. The prophet and outsider. But you have to find allies on the on, on, in, in, inside. On the inside. And that's right. the point. The point of something like David in the book of Shuel is, okay, he doesn't see necessarily what he's done wrong. But when the prophet tells him that he does see it, that he's able to understand it, not, not, not sure that King Saul can, but David does. He's able to, and that's what you need. The book of Shuel presumes that kings will do terrible things because they have power, unlimited power virtually, and people with power abuse it, no doubt. Question is, can they can they correct it after the fact? So David does have a navi in his, in his court. He tells him after the fact he did, he did wrong. David has Abigail who sets him straight. You know what I'm saying? The, the people around him and David listens to them actually to his credit. But the presumption of Shmuel or the Book of Shmuel is that people with power will often do very bad things. And uh, you know, the outsider who has the clarity and not vested is capable of seeing the truth. Whereas people on the inside who have power, typically it's very hard for them to see the truth because they have too much self-interest in not seeing the truth. Okay, let me just say where we stand here now. So I think we have to, we're up to- Rabbi Silver? Yes. Um, if it's all right, um, I think you was waiting to ask a question for a Go while. Ahead. Thank you. Oh, uh, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to point out in line 14, um, when um, Tamar teshev bepetach enayim and ra'ata, if I remember correctly, this is a contrast to Hagar, who was also a woman who was mistreated by this lineage. Um, but if, if I recall correctly, you talked about Hagar hearing but not seeing. Right. I talked about two things, hearing and not seeing. And even when she does see, 
the Torah says, Vayivkach Elohim God opened up her eyes. Yeah. Make it sound like she couldn't see up by herself. God opens her eyes up for her. So in the case of Tamar, is about a woman who sees very clearly. Right. There is that contrast between one who sees and one who is capable of seeing, one who has to be assisted to see or can only hear but not see. That is certainly the case. In the case of Tamar, she sees everything perfectly well. Mm-hmm. The only question we have is, what about Judah? And that we'll have to pick up next time when we meet next time on this, in this series. Uh, plan to continue, see if we can finish the Book of Breshit together. Um, okay, thank you all for participating. I appreciate it. We have a lot of other stuff over the summer and beyond, and it should be, uh, you know, should be interesting. We have a lot of other classes as well. Thank you all.